Amen. Thank you so much, Austin, leading us in that. Let's continue to worship, shall we? And I mean that when I say that. Let's continue to worship. And by turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. And if you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll be happy to get one into your hands. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And while you're doing that, uh, you can just pass your cups uh, to the nearest aisle, uh, whichever side, it doesn't matter. And one of the ushers will come along here shortly and pick those up for you. And better that you do that than put them in the offering bag later on. And it makes it a little difficult. It's happened, I say. It's happened. It makes it a little difficult to count the money when it's stuck together with grape juice. So um, trust that you'll do that. First Corinthians chapter 16 is found on page 962 in those Bibles that are being handed out, if that helps you uh, a little bit and get there a little bit quicker. Uh, one of the last few messages that uh, we're going to encounter in this uh, amazing letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. And last week, if you were with us, or even if you weren't and you caught it online or picked up a copy of books and things, last week we talked about how to bless those in full-time ministry. How to bless them by welcoming them into your life and helping them when they need it and blessing them with rest and protecting them, last but not least, protecting them from disrespect. That was the first thread, and that is the first thread that Paul weaves into this uh, passage here in verses 5 through 12. How to bless those in full-time ministry. But it's not the only thread that he weaves through this passage. The other is how to lead people in ministry. Or as I've titled it, ministry, leadership, and people. And we're going to find as we work our way through this passage a second time, last week being the first, this week being the second, we're going to find five principles that apply not just in church, but in your home and at your workplace and in your play. And these principles are really that broad. Certainly the focus is leadership in ministry, but they apply all across the board. That's the second thread. And so you follow along with me as I read once again, starting in verse 5 and going through Verse 12 is the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and by extension to us. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the other brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Let me start by praying. Lord, thank you so much for the example, your work of grace in Paul, and the example that he is for us, and the charge to follow him as he follows you, to imitate him as he did you. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress these principles on our hearts and souls, and that we would live them out ever more so, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the first principle that we find when it comes to leadership, especially leadership in ministry, is to manage expectations but keep it real. Manage expectations but keep it real. If anybody has ever leveled the charge that the Bible is not very practical, that it's an out-of-date book or something, they haven't read some of these parts, that's for sure. In fact, they haven't read probably any of it. And if they had, their eyes are still probably blinded by the deceit of sin or whatnot. Because this is about as practical as it gets here, these principles that we find from the life of Paul as he was relating to others and especially those in Corinth. The first of which is manage expectations but keep it real. In other words, don't be a typical politician. Wish I couldn't say that in our day and age, but I can. And not, it's not true of every politician, of course, but in typical of many, many. In other words, don't be a person who speaks in glittering generalities and promises far more than you can deliver on. You know what I'm saying? Don't be like that in whatever circle of leadership you find yourself in. Don't exceed what you know to be true. Keep it real like Paul did here, who said in verse 6, look at it there again, he said, perhaps I will stay with you. He didn't say, I definitely am going to stay with you. Because he didn't absolutely know for sure, but he said, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. In other words, I'm not sure, but maybe. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. So that, he goes on to say, you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Wherever. Paul didn't know. At that point of writing, he didn't know exactly where he was going to go after he visited them in Corinth. He wasn't quite sure. And so he left it that way. He kept it real. He kept it real. Instead of telling them what they wanted to hear, he spoke only the truth. And isn't that our desire most of the time as followers? Isn't it our desire to be told what we want to hear? Totally is. Self-included. Tell me what I want to hear. And that's why people who are so good, let's just refer back to the political arena, that's why people who are so good at articulating and figuring out what people want to hear are followed so much. And that's why they go to such lengths to figure out what people want to hear so that you can stand up and you can tell them what they want to hear about the furthest thing from keeping it real many times. Paul didn't do that. He only spoke the truth. Neither limiting his options, which is one of the blessings of keeping it real, keeping it open sometimes when you don't know, he neither limited his options nor exceeded his ability to deliver on what he was saying. But listen, having said that, to the extent that he could, to the extent that he could articulate what he was going to do, to the the extent that he did know, he said so. And in so doing, managed their expectations, whether they wanted to hear it or not. I will visit. Look at what he says there in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. To the extent that he knew, he said so. And rightly so. Rightly so. Because managing people's expectations as a leader is one of the most other-oriented things that you can do. Seriously, it's one of the the most other-oriented things you can do as a leader. He's telling them what you're thinking to the extent that you know, even telling them that you don't know if that's what you're thinking. It's other-oriented, as in letting people know your plans and, and what they can expect of you and what you expect of them. And the list goes on. 
The alternative is expecting them to read your mind, which is one of the more selfish things that you can do as a leader. And let's just be honest here. It happens all the time in the home, doesn't it? Most often from the husband to the wife. He doesn't really articulate what he's thinking, if he's thinking anything. He doesn't articulate it. And and when he is thinking something, he pretty much expects his wife, this is usually after about five years of marriage or so, he usually expects his wife to just know what in the world he's thinking, to read his mind. Hello? She can't read your mind. She might know you pretty well, but she can't read your mind. And it's one of the more selfish things that you can do as a leader in your home, a godly leader that you should be, to withhold from her what you're thinking, what you expect of her and what she can expect of you and for your family. It's one of the more selfish things. And get this, it's one of the more dangerous things to withhold what your thought is for what's coming down the pipeline is one of the more dangerous things that you can do as a leader because unmanaged expectations will kill you. Say it all the time to our staff. Uh, anybody else that I can get, get across to, unmanaged expectations will kill you. If you're a leader and you fail to live up to what people expect of you, it's going to be a problem. If they expect something of you that you fully intend to not even come close to, it's a problem. If what you are planning on doing is completely and diametrically opposed to what they are planning on you doing, it's a problem. At the very least, they're going to complain and whine and grumble and sow seeds of discontent. And at the very worst, they're going to leave and desert or mutiny. Whether it's a business or a sports team or a small group or church at large. Better to manage expectations like Paul, who not only told the Corinthians what he intended to do, but he gave them a heads up of what he expected of them, hospitality. And so whether you're the leader of a small group, a service team, an entire ministry around here, or your family, or a sports team, or a band, or whatever it is, don't assume that those in your care know what you're thinking because they don't. They don't. And don't leave it, last thing here, don't leave it to chance that they'll just, you know, pick it up along the way because they're spending so much time with you. They won't. That's like thinking that your kids are going to pick up their shoes off of the stairs without being told. Any resemblance to real people or real situations is purely coincidental. You can't expect it. You can't expect it. And there's far too much at stake to expect that they're just going to pick up along the way what you're thinking. In the case of the stairs, there's broken legs at stake. In the case of ministry, there's broken lives at stake. So manage expectations, yes. But keep it real. Don't exceed what you know, and don't exceed what you can deliver. That's the first principle that we find here from Paul's example as he weaves it into this last narrative and this last part of his letter of 1 Corinthians. Second is plan ahead, but hold loosely. Plan ahead, but hold loosely. Paul says in verse 7, look at it there again. He says, I I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul not only wanted to see them, but he planned on spending some time with them. He planned on it. 
That's the key. He planned on it, which is crucial to anything successful as a leader, at least over the long haul. Planning. You have to plan ahead if you have any hope of leading the people in your care well. You have to plan ahead, which requires that you think ahead. Hello. Like if you're going to plan ahead, you have to think ahead. That's one of the reasons that good leaders, as I articulated last week, are constantly thinking. They have to. Otherwise, there will be no plans. There will be no direction. There will be no forward momentum. There will be no goal. There will be no vision. And without a vision, the organization dies. Without a vision, the business fails, doesn't it? I see some of you out there who are business leaders and, and owners of businesses. Without a business plan, if you will, it goes kaput. Without a vision, the family splinters. You don't have to look very hard to see that. Without a vision, the team loses. Without a vision, the church fades. Without a vision, the people perish. There's so much at stake. You need to plan ahead. In order to plan ahead, you need to think ahead. And then, most important of all, you need to make sure that you submit those plans to the Lord. Oh, is that so important in this? Having thought ahead and planned ahead, the most important part, especially in ministry, but in all of life, is to submit those plans to the Lord. Saying like Paul here, if the Lord permits I will spend some time with you. That should always, always be in the back of our mind, always on the back burner, always undergirding and overshadowing every single thing that we plan on doing. Whether it's a little thing of going to the grocery store or a big thing of changing your life upside down and going into a different vocation or whatever it is or moving halfway across the world. If the Lord permits, if the Lord permits, or as James says it in James 4.15, if the Lord wills, we will, we will live and do this or that according to our plans. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that next year in a different city in that particular context. And that's what we should be thinking all the while we're planning. In other words, hold loosely. Plan ahead. I got it. In other words, plan ahead, but hold loosely. Plan ahead, but hold loosely. That's the idea of if the Lord permits, if the Lord wills. So often I think we say that, myself included, but we're not really sure about how that all works. How is it that we are, you know, to live out the, the heartfelt thing many times of if the Lord permits? It means holding loosely. The first key to which is don't presume that God will automatically bless your plans. You want to hold loosely? Don't presume on God to automatically bless your plans. We exist, listen loved ones, this, is get, this, this principle is getting so turned upside down in our world, and in church world especially, it's not even funny. It's so very, very subtle. We exist to follow God and His way, not the other way around. He doesn't exist as our genie. He doesn't exist 
to get on our page as good as we think our page is and as good as it might be. That's not the way it works. We exist to follow his way. That's the first key to holding loosely. Don't presume on God to automatically bless your plans. The second key on that one is to pay attention to the obstacles in your path. If you're going to hold loosely, part of that means you're going to have to pay attention to the hitches in your plan. Far too often, I think, especially in ministry and especially the things that we spiritualize, sometimes overly so, far too often we automatically assume that hardship or barriers or difficulties come from Satan as a way to deter us. Far too often, I think that's our automatic default. If something came up which is hindering what I'm uh, thinking that I'm supposed to be doing, what I planned on doing, what I felt so strongly from the Lord to be doing, something's in the way, and that's got to be from Satan. Far too often I think we go there when oftentimes those hindrances and those obstacles come from God as a way to refine us. Not deter us, but refine us. Or change our direction three degrees here or there. Or follow the bend in the road that he wants us to be taken, taking. Or maybe he brings those obstacles and hindrances into our path to just give us a growth spurt and force upon us a growth spurt and some of those fruits of the Spirit that we might be lacking on or weak in. Not always. It's not always directly from the Lord, those hindrances and obstacles. But sometimes it is. Sometimes they are. And it behooves us to pay attention despite having planned ahead. It behooves us to hold loosely. That's the second principle we find here from Paul, his life situation. Plan ahead, absolutely crucial, crucial for anything successful in any kind of a leadership role. But hold loosely, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Then third is take advantage of opportunities, but be discerning. Take advantage of opportunities, but be discerning. I trust that you know by now, after, if you've been here for a while, after studying so much of the book of 1 Corinthians, I trust you know by now that Paul loved them. He did, didn't he? Nobody would pour their heart out like he did if, if he didn't. He loved them. And he longed to be with them. He desperately wanted to see them. In some instances, we found he wanted to be with them to correct them in a big way. In others, he wanted to be near them to love on them and commend them. He says that in the book. I commend you. There are several places. And this was no different. Paul desperately wanted to be with them, we find from this text. But duty called. Opportunity knocked. He says in verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, has opened to me. A wide door for effective work has opened to me. Not just any door, but a wide one. A golden opportunity to do the very thing that he had been called to do. As in preach the gospel, spread the word, edify the church, plant new ones. And the list goes on. Here was a golden opportunity. That's what he means by a wide door. To do the very thing that God had called him to do. And he was intent on taking advantage of it. 
Despite his longing to go to Corinth, he was intent upon taking advantage of the opportunity right in front of him. Delaying his visit to Corinth until Pentecost, he says there in verse 8. As, until the spring. Evidently, he was most likely writing in the fall of the year. And so much wanting to go see them, probably before winter. But he was saying, not going to happen until the spring. Not going to. Why? Because there was a wide door for effective work, a wide door, a golden opportunity for ministry. Listen, when God opens wide doors for effective works of ministry in your life, take advantage of them. Don't get so caught up in thinking, okay, what's out there? And you're, you're constantly looking to the far reaches of the horizon that you miss the very things that God has in front of you, which could include your neighbor who lives right next to you, could include your co-worker who works next to you. Or something in church or something that's already existing in your life. Something that's already available to you to, to plug into, for you to plug into. Like don't miss the golden opportunities, the wide doors for effective works that might be staring you in the face already just because you're looking out over the horizon. When God opens them, take advantage of them. But therein lies the discernment, doesn't it? It does. Because every opportunity is not a mandate, is it? It can't possibly be. We can't possibly, as individuals, take advantage of every single possibility for ministry that comes our way. We can't. We only have so many hours in the day. And neither can we do so as a church. We can't possibly take advantage of every uh, possibility for ministry. Every opportunity is not a mandate, and the same was true for Paul. He was only one man. And what constitutes a wide door. How do you know that? Once again, Paul's situation is instructive to us and we find it in Acts chapter 19. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but I want you to listen to these highlights. It says in Acts chapter 19 that Ephesus was a place from which, quote, all the residents of Asia could hear the word of the Lord. That was the place that Paul so strongly felt was the base of operations from which the entire northern Mediterranean could hear the word of the Lord. That would be a wide door. And it was a place, it says in Acts 19, verse 17, where the name of Jesus was already being extolled. That is, highly exalted, highly praised. Just like the name of Jesus is being highly exalted and highly praised right here as we sing praise is rising. And we enter into it as one from our hearts and expressing it with our hands, sometimes clapping, sometimes raised, and with our voices. And even standing with our bodies. Praise is rising and evidently it was doing so there as well. That's an open door. And then third, Ephesus was a place, it says in Acts 19.20, where the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Don't you love that? I honestly believe that's what's going on around here and what has gone on around here for seven and a half years now. The word of the Lord is increasing, no doubt about that, and it's prevailing mightily in the hearts and lives of more and more people. The same was true in Ephesus. That constituted a wide door for Paul. A golden opportunity. And having discerned it, he took advantage of it. Even delaying doing 
another work of ministry that he so longed to do. And even though he had all kinds of opportunities like that in any number of cities in the northern Mediterranean, he did. Paul could have gone to any one of those cities and spread the word. He could have gone to any one of those cities and reinforced the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ that was going on. And we know that because of some of the other letters that he wrote to those churches there. And and not only that, but he'd already been in Ephesus for two and a half years. You'd think it was time to move on, wouldn't you? Especially for somebody like Paul, who was so called to go where nobody had gone before. Wasn't it time to get going, Paul? To to expend yourself in some other uh, group of, of people in some other town? Wasn't it time to leave them and and go? You'd think it was, but he didn't. He stayed, catch this, he stayed and furthered his investment there because the door was wide open, which is exactly how we feel about our build-out, isn't it? It's a wide open door for effective ministry, a golden opportunity for more and better of what we're already doing and then some right here and from here. It is. In fact, that's what our entire church has been from the get-go, both inside of these walls and out, including things like Kids for Christ in some of our schools, a golden opportunity that several of you and many of you have begun to take advantage of. Or backyard Bible clubs in some of our neighborhoods that's starting to percolate here and there. Golden opportunity that we're beginning to take advantage of. And first principles as our core discipleship curriculum that more and more people are taking advantage of. And the School of Ministry for Advanced Study and our two church plants in Chattanooga and Washington, D.C. thus far. And our partnership with the fellowship all over the world to plant more and more churches. All wide doors for effective works of ministry. Here it is, from right here. From right here. I mean, if it was true in Paul's day and age that Ephesus could be the base from which all of Asia could hear, like in the horse and buggy day, in the donkey day, in the walking day, if that was true then, how much more so can it be in our day? Connected as we are via internet and phone and who knows what coming down the pipeline. All wide doors for effective works of ministry from right here and none of which we had to walk through. We didn't have to latch on to any one of those uh, works of ministry that I just listed or any of the others that we are involved in. We didn't even have to plant the church here for that matter. But having discerned the opportunities, we did. We took advantage of them, much like Paul did in Ephesus. And we continue to do so as God opens wide doors for effective ministry and hope to do so in terms of satellite campuses someday. Lord willing. It's one of the things that we've pressed pause on. You've heard me talk about before, just like Paul pressed pause on the Corinth visit. But Lord willing, it's coming because we see the doors wide open for us to walk through. So listen, whatever the capacity of leadership you find yourself in, whether inside these walls or out, church world or secular. Take advantage of them. Take advantage of the opportunities. But by all means, be discerning. Be discerning. You with me? 
I'll take that as a yes. All right. Number four, fourth principle we find is protect what you have, but don't smother it. Protect what you have in your arena of leadership, but don't smother it. You see, Paul not only wanted to stay and was compelled to stay there in Ephesus due to the opportunity, but he needed to stay, didn't he? He needed to. Otherwise, wolves would have torn it up. Opposition would have consumed it. Adversaries, as he says it here, would have wrecked it. They would have made a mess of it. They would have torn it asunder so that the church was no longer effective in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Adversaries abounded. There were many, he says in the second part of verse 9, three of whom are mentioned once again by Luke in Acts chapter 19. The sons of Sceva, that was one of the groups of opposition. Uh, they, they, they were these people who didn't really believe in Jesus, but they saw the effective works that Paul was doing in Jesus' name. So they like kind of glommed on and said, hey, uh, we, we pronounce this and we claim this in the name of Jesus. They did it at the wrong time, at the wrong place to a person who was demon-possessed. And the demon, speaking through the person, said, uh, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but you I don't. And ended up beating them up and stripping them naked and they had to run out of the house poorly ashamed. Adversaries. Adversaries glomming on to the work of ministry that Paul was so much about. Not only that, there was Demetrius the silversmith there in Ephesus. He was the guy who stirred all the other silversmiths up. It was probably one of the first indicators of a union. I don't know. Nonetheless, he got them all together. He's like, hey, the thing that Paul's doing, it's like hurting business. Like they were making these little idols, these little statuesques of the gods and goddesses at that time. And he's like, it's hurting businesses. Like businesses down, the output and production and all that sort of stuff. It, we're we're going to lose our livelihood if we don't run him out of town. Demetrius and the silversmiths. And then last but not least was a huge mob, a whole riotous crowd that came together as a result of that stirring up. They got together in the amphitheater and for two hours they basically chanted that their God was the thing and Paul needed to get lost. Adversaries. Opposition abounded. Which I want you to know is always the case with every work of ministry. Opposition abounds. So much so that we should expect it. We should. In addition to all the awesome things of ministry, the joy and the fruit and the love and the fellowship and the changed lives and the righteousness and the most importantly, the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to all of that and expecting all of that, we should also expect opposition. In fact, to the extent that we don't expect opposition, we'll be disheartened discouraged, will be disillusioned. You know, our, our, our mindset of what it was going to be is, is just going to like come crashing down on us. We're going to be disillusioned and we're going to be ill-prepared to face it. Just like an army gets lazy and complacent because they don't anticipate battle. They don't anticipate combat. Examples of which abound throughout history. Like the Russian army, as I was reading a few months back, previous to World War I. They were literally, without stereotyping, they were literally more interested in drinking vodka than they were making bullets, because of which they almost lost their end of World War I. And had they lost their end of World War I, we probably would have lost our end of World War I on the other side of Europe. Fortunately, they got it together. 
The point being that if you become lazy and complacent in ministry, just like in warfare, you're going to be ill-prepared to face the combat. Listen, do you realize that there are people who hate the conviction they feel due to the truth you proclaim and especially the life you live? Do you realize that? There are people, I guarantee you, there are people, if you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, there are people in your circle who hate it when you walk into the room because you are the aroma of death to them. They hate the conviction that they feel. They may not hate you, but oh, they feel so uncomfortable. And that might turn into a hatred for you. Do you realize that? And do you realize that some people, especially in our day and age, see us and our beliefs as a hindrance to their enlightened way of thinking? You don't have to look very far in the ivory towers of our nation to find that. They see us as a hindrance to their enlightened way of thinking. And they see us as a threat, though they would probably never articulate it this way. They see us as a threat to their often sinful way of living. I hope you realize that. Because if you don't, you'll be ill-prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you don't, you'll be ill-prepared to protect our church and the work of ministry of which you're a part. You'll be ill-prepared to protect the stand that you've taken, that we just sung about at the end of the Lord's table, you'll be ill-prepared to protect the stand that you've taken for the glory of God. We must expect and protect against opposition from without. And unfortunately, we must also expect and protect against opposition from within. That's right, from within which most often comes in three forms very quickly. Most often the opposition that comes from within the church, it doesn't have to, but we need to be on the, out, on, on the lookout for it. Most often it comes in the form of divisive tendencies on the part of unhappy people. Divisive tendencies on the part of unhappy people. People who judge and grumble or whine or complain just as a matter of course. I don't think that any of them really wake up uh, one particular day and think, I- I'm going to complain and I'm going to grumble and so on about my church or those who are in it. It just makes them feel good for some reason. Makes them feel better about themselves. It takes their eyes off the things that they ought to be looking at and the eyes of others off themselves and puts it on somebody else. That's the first form of opposition from within a church. It's divisive tendencies on the part of unhappy people. Second is compromising tendencies on the part of desperate leaders. Compromising tendencies on the part of desperate leaders. Resulting, again, I don't think that church leaders, and this is so true in far too many places, I don't think the church leaders wake up and go, hey, I'm going to water down the gospel But oftentimes, compromising tendencies on the part of desperate leaders results in a watered-down gospel and therefore a worldly church in order to accommodate more people and satisfy the desire for more people and offend less. It's so subtle and it's so real for leaders in ministry to compromise on the gospel 
to compromise on the repentance of sins that's required in addition to the faith in Jesus to save them so that they can live forever and abide with him. The tendency on the part of desperate leaders is to compromise that. It's a form of opposition from within. And then third are protectionist tendencies on the part of fearful leaders. Protectionist tendencies on the part of fearful leaders. And quite honestly, I'm pretty much preaching to an audience of one on that one. You see, the first two are pretty obvious, I think. Divisive tendencies and compromising tendencies, pretty obvious and easily seen. But the latter, though subtle, is just as insidious and equally damaging. And that is protectionist tendencies. The bottom line being that a death grip on ministry is no good because that's what it leads to. Protectionism in ministry works about as well as protectionism in trade. Part of which and part of what we must protect against is holding so tightly to our church and ministry. I hear you on this, Lord. I hear you. Part of what we must protect against is holding so tightly to our church and ministry that we smother the passion and suffocate the spirit. And I've had this in my mind from the get-go, from day one and even before that. To not try to control every move of the spirit in every single person or every single small group or every single ministry. To not try to control the decisions of those that we supposedly have, in, have empowered to make decisions as leaders in ministry. But to lead as best I can and hold loosely to what God is doing in their lives, trusting that he's working in them just as much as he's working in me. We must protect against smothering the passion and suffocating the spirit. We must guard against failing to trust God to preserve our church with the same faith we had in starting our church. We have to have the same kind of faith. We have to have the same faith that we had in starting the church, in, in trusting God to propel our church and move it forward and protect our church and, and just do an incredibly wild work of ministry. It takes the same kind of faith. And we must protect against the protectionist tendencies that creep in as our church gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In other words, part of the opposition that we must expect in ministry and protect against is our own fear of failure. Our own fear of failure. And the best way to do so is to continue stepping out in faith as God leads. To keep taking advantage of the opportunities at hand and holding loosely to the ones that we already have. Or on your part as an individual, to keep doing what God wants you to do within the framework of ministry, with the framework, within the framework of the life to which he has called you, trusting him for the energy to do it again and again and again. The best way to combat that fear of failure is to keep giving what he wants you to give, trusting him to provide more or live on less. Protect what you have whether it's in your home or your family, your workplace, or here at church. But don't smother it. 
Don't smother it. Revel, rather, in the work of the Spirit as He does it in more and more people who call this church their home. Amen? Amen. And then last, urge people to serve, but respect their wishes. Manage expectations, but keep it real. Plan ahead, but hold loosely. Take advantage of opportunities, but be discerning. Protect what you have, but don't smother it. And urge people to serve in your leadership role. Urge people to serve, but respect their wishes. One of the things that we tell new pastors in our fellowship, every single time they come through here, you know, the ones that are going through the four-month uh, training center over in Elgin, we get an afternoon with them to impart everything that we've learned, whether by failure or success, in about, uh, well, I don't know, three or four hours. If you can imagine that. And one of those things that we impart to them is to never ever be bashful about calling people to a high standard. Not only a high standard of living in terms of holiness, but a high standard in terms of service. Never be bashful about calling people to do what you're doing and to do more. We encourage them to never hold back when they see a need whether it's a financial need or otherwise, or a need to serve, a need for volunteers in ministry or, a, or their need to serve in ministry, whether there's a need in the ministry or not. We tell them, never be bashful. Never be ashamed about calling people to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never. It's the work of ministry. It's kingdom stuff. There is nothing else that's more important. That's exactly what Paul does in verse 12. Look at it. He says, I strongly urged Apollos. Do you see it? I strongly urged. That's about as close to saying I twisted his arm as much as I possibly could without severing it from his body. Strongly urged. Referring, of course, to his desire to see Apollos visit the Corinthians as well. He urged him to serve, and we should too as leaders in ministry. But listen, having done so, having urged people to serve, we also need to respect the wishes of those who say no. We need to respect their wishes. Push, but don't force it. Because for whatever reason, they may not resonate with the need or the opportunity. They might not. That's okay. Every opportunity is not a mandate. We all fulfill different roles in the, as different parts of the body of Christ here at Harvest. And so we need to respect the wishes of those having been asked who say, no, I don't want to be about that, or I don't want to be about that at this time. They may not resonate with it, or the timing might, might not be right, like it wasn't for Apollos on both uh, fronts. It was not at all his will, it says in verse 12. It was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. He evidently couldn't go because he didn't have opportunity to do so for some reason. We don't know if it was finances or sickness or whatever it was. He evidently couldn't go, and he didn't resonate with going. It wasn't his will. It was not at all his will, Paul says. And that's okay. That's okay when people respond that way to your plea for help or your urging to serve. Assuming, of course, that they're living right. Assuming, of course, that they're in step with the Spirit. That they have the mind of Christ. That they're thinking about things from a kingdom perspective. If that's not the case, then you need to go back to square one and address that in them if you see that or you sense that. But that being true... It's okay if they say no. 
And we need to respect those wishes. But in no way, in no way, should that keep you from urging those around you to serve like you are as a leader. It shouldn't. And so as July gives way to August in a few weeks and school begins once again, let me do that. Let me urge you to serve right now. To find a ministry in which you give of your time and your effort. If it's on the weekends, like in children's ministry, there's always a need there. If that's the case, great. Worship one service and work one service. If they need you to do it every week, do it every week. If it's in every other week, do it every other week. And in fact, if, if that's where you're sensing the Lord's leading or the Lord's compulsion, start now, like plan ahead now, because it takes at least a month to work through the application process and the background check, because we take that very seriously, the care of our kids. Or if it's on weekdays, like in student ministries, if that appeals to you, or, or something outside of these walls, whatever it is, whatever the case, plug in somewhere and take advantage of the opportunities that are literally staring you in the face as you walk through this building. Take advantage of them. Waffle no longer. Pray no longer. There comes a time when you've prayed up and you've stayed up to get up and get going. Plug in. And as you do, Make sure that you expect and even anticipate oppositions and obstructions. Because they'll come. Either from Satan as a way to deter you. Or from the Lord as a way to refine you. Let's pray. God, you know my desire on this. That you would raise up more and more disciples who worship you and walk with you and work for you in every area of life, ministry or otherwise. God, that's my desire. Especially so when it comes to leaders, God. Would you do that? Would you raise up more and more men and women and students who are so passionate for you that they are leaders extraordinaire in their workplaces, in their schools, in their homes, in their play? I trust you for that, God. Would you change the hearts of those who aren't leading well and encourage those who are with these principles? Spur them on. Bless them immensely, I pray, all for the purpose of increasing your praise, praise that's rising and continues to do so. In fact, that's the heart with which we give now, God, that your praise would increase. We give to the praise of your glory with our tithes and offerings. In Jesus' name.